This is the Wicked Problems in Circular Systems podcast. I'm your host, Chris Hostreich. Today I'm welcoming David Atkins onto the show. He's a two-time contributor to the Wicked Problems Collaborative. David, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, happy to be here. My name is David Atkins. I am a newly elected DNC member from the state of California. I am also a contributor to the Washington Monthly Political Animal. I have bylines at American Prospect and other places, and a longtime Democratic activist as well in, in California. And I also have a qualitative research firm. Thank you, David. Your chapter in the latest WPC book is about monopolies. Can can you give us just you know high level overview of the chapter, or just tell us a little bit of why you think monopolies are problematic? Yeah, sure. There have actually been a number of books written about this recently. A lot of activists and economists, our journalists, are coming to realize the extraordinary problem that we have. We have a massive consolidation of ownership. And not just in terms of capitalism versus socialism issues, but even just within the context of capitalism itself, it, there's a serious problem in which we have what used to be a wide range of companies that are increasingly consolidating and ownership of media, ownership of all sorts of different sectors of the economy are coming in under basically either monopolistic or, or oligopolic sort of umbrellas. And that has all the sorts of problems that were identified back in the Teddy Roosevelt era. A lack of innovation, price gouging, the ability to basically corner your markets and control customer bases. It's bad for consumers, just from a purely capitalist standpoint. And then, of course, when you look at it from a broader social problem standpoint, the presence of monopolies makes them too big to fail from a financialized standpoint. It basically puts government beholden to the corporate sector when you have corporations that are so big that they can basically wield power that is in excess of governments and in excess of the people. So it's a problem on all sorts of different fronts, and we are facing a huge trend in consolidation that is only continuing ever more steadily. And the subject of my chapter was about COVID specifically, which was devastating to a lot of small businesses and only is increasing the trend toward consolidation, particularly of those retailers that can service people online. It seems like an awful lot of small businesses are not surviving this. And I'm I'm wondering, we seem to have our government in the U.S. seems to be trying to get back on the track we were on five, 10 years ago. I don't think that's going to work. I think it's going to be, I hope we get out of this pandemic very quickly and get back to normal as far as that goes. But that the idea that the the economy is just going to hum along with greater and greater concentration. I, I think it's ridiculous. I don't I can't imagine how that's going to work going forward. No, I don't think so. Look, it's an old chestnut of like almost 90s era rhetoric. Small business really is the driver of capitalist mm-hmm. economy. You can't have, and again, leaving the capitalism socialism question on, on the table for, for a moment. Let's just talk purely in terms of what makes for an effective capitalist economy. Small business is the driver of that. Mm-hmm. You can't have an economy, a capitalist economy in which resources are effectively distributed. And again, leaving outside of whether capitalism effectively distributes resources in the first place, but even within the capitalist context, you can't effectively distribute resources within a capitalist economy Mm -hmm. if you don't have a strong small business sector. If all the power accrues to the very top, 
the worst excesses of capitalism, of course, reign. You have massive, massive inequality. All the power is held in a few hands. All the wealth is held in a few hands. And you also have just entire sectors of geographically that die. Like part of the challenge that we're dealing with the the Trump voter base and all of that is that you have gigantic rural sectors of the economy that can no longer maintain Main Street economies. So entire towns are dying. That doesn't excuse their voting choices, but it is part of the larger social problem that we have to solve. If we don't go into a new era of trust busting, if we don't regulate the monopolies, if we don't bring a fairer playing field, then we are not going to be able to sustain Main Street economies. And if we yeah. are not able to maintain, if and if we can't maintain Main Street economies, if you're the sort of person who wants to defend capitalism, this is the sort of point that Elizabeth Warren has been making all the time. If you are a capitalist, if you are the sort of person who wants to maintain capitalism, if you don't want socialist-style revolutions and socialist-style land reforms, then you have to make capitalism work. And capitalism doesn't work <laughs> if you have monopolies all mm-hmm. throughout the economy. This is something that we've known for a very long time. It's why we had the trust busting era of Teddy Roosevelt. And we have to do it again. And if we can't do it, there's this other sort of mode of thinking that goes, well, you know what? Having Walmart be available everywhere is helpful. Amazon is really helpful. Like, why should we go back to a local mom and pop that is more expensive? Well, the reason is <laughs> if you don't do that, then you have to come up with an entirely new mode of production and of economic organization because you cannot continue to maintain this style of capitalist economy in that way. Yeah, I've lived outside of the U.S. for the last six years in Thailand. Some of the shocking things for me when I moved here were medical expenses, how inexpensive it was compared to the medical expenses in the U.S., and certain services like cable your cell phone services. I have four lines of cell phone on my bill, along with cable wrapped into the same thing in my my home internet, which is fiber. And it's less than a single phone line was, a cell phone line back when I was in the U.S. when I left. It's just, these are the same types of services being provided. But in the U.S., those were basically monopolies uh, for the cable and the home internet. And, you know, they charge what they want, basically. Yeah, and look, what what conservatives would say, too, is that in some cases, these are government created monopolies when you talk about the the cable it's not just that the the general sort of pressures of unregulated capitalism that trend inevitably toward monopoly are at play in these cases the government has actually functionally created monopolies and the Mm -hmm. same goes for a lot of health insurance providers you know our public policy has actually exacerbated the problem so we've got to do two things we've got to regulate the laissez-faire free market economy that naturally trends itself toward monopoly and Walmartization in these cases. But we also have to figure out how to undo some of the intentional monopolies that we have created through through government policy. So David, let's let's move on. You had a you recently had an article in Washington Monthly that had really good traction, very interesting and worrisome one about the potential breakdown in the political process, looking at what, what happened in the last election and I'm projecting forward and looking at the possibility of elections not being certified and other problematic possibilities. Could we talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, this is why, what I've, I've called it the slow rolling insurrection. January 6th was not a single insurrection by a bunch of yokels that was a single point in time that we've moved on from. This has been a process. 
And we are seeing with the Republican Party two things that they've done since the election, since the November election and the January 6th Capitol insurrection. One is the one that has gotten a lot of attention. State by state, hundreds of voter suppression bills trying to restrict access to the ballot box, trying to prevent people, particularly Democratic constituencies, people of color, young people, etc., from being able to vote. They, they know that they're outnumbered. They know they can't win a fair election. They have to prevent people from voting so that they can maintain apartheid control of the country. That has gotten a lot of attention. But the other piece of the puzzle that's gone more under the radar that a lot of folks have not wanted to confront until recently is what has been happening to actual elected officials who certify elections in red and purple states. The And this goes all the way from secretaries of state to county board election officials. In case by case by case, even ca- local county board election officials up to all the way up through the county level and the, and the state level have been given death threats. They've been forced into hiding. They have, through the legislatures, taken their power to certify elections, taken away from them and handed to state, partisan state legislatures. The end result of all of this is uh, they've been censured by county and state Republican parties uh, with official censures. The, the end result of all this is to make very, very clear to any Republican elected official, all the way down to tiny local county board cert boards that you've never heard of, that if they certify a major democratic win again, they will be, they will have their families threatened and they will be tossed out of office. The January 6th coup itself was in the context of the House of Representatives and the Senate, the attempt by Republicans to refuse to certify the electors in the House and the Senate. All of these pushes put together mean that every single incentive in the Republican Party and the demand of local and state Uh, Republican parties themselves, is to refuse to concede any Democratic victory as legitimate and to refuse, frankly, to certify the victories at all. This has all sorts of legal ramifications because if you refuse to certify an election at a certain point, a variety of other mechanisms are triggered. In the presidential election specifically, what happens if you fail to certify is exactly what they were trying to do with the Trump election. It pushes back to the state legislature, well, not to the state legislatures, but to the um, House delegations, which are themselves gerrymandered. And in theory, you could absolutely see a situation in which Joe Biden or Kamala Harris, whoever's the nominee in 2024, wins by like seven or eight million votes, wins by 40 electoral votes. And they simply refuse to certify those totals in the states that the Democrat wins. And then it goes back to the House delegations. And those House delegations just functionally say, no, the Republican won the election. And and you've basically overthrown democracy at that point. And what happens then? Then you're looking at potential massive civil conflict. What does California do? What does New York do? What does Google do? What does Starbucks do? You're looking at a massive civil problems. But that's the road they're on. And we absolutely have to believe them and take them at their word when they say that they're going to do this, because that's what they're saying they're going to do. Look at the Arizona recap or the uh, fake audit. We're clinging by our teeth right now to the, the remains of democracy. And there doesn't seem to be the level of alarm at the level where the people can deal with this, that there needs to be. The stuff that needs to be done with the Supreme Court and filibuster and things like that, 
they don't seem to be priorities. Yeah, I'm, I'm absolutely worried because basically we have a, a short interlude here where we have the time and the power to fix some of those things. We still have all of the people who want to do those things, which, you know, that's, that's going to be an ongoing problem for a long time. But if they don't deal with this right now, I keep thinking back to when Obama took over and he had both houses for a short time. And then I don't remember, I think someone passed away. So they ended up being even shorter than expected. I'm looking at this and you know, the, the clock's ticking and are, are they going to deal with this stuff or, or is this going to slip out of their hands? And then the next election happens and suddenly we're in, in a significantly worse position because we've got, we've got a lot of people that are part of our government apparatus that I mean, they're living in a different reality from the one I'm in. I, that was my, my chapter is on disinformation, and, and I think we have a huge problem with that that we have to deal with where people just don't live. We, we live right next door to each other, but we live in alternate realities, and I, you know, I, I, that's a real problem going forward. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, Senator Ted Kennedy who, who died during the Obama administration. No, absolutely. This is a serious problem. And part of it is people are too, I think, prone to blame the Democrats broadly for things that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Senate are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's important to note that I think basically all the Democratic base and 95% of Democratic elected officials would in a moment's notice, get rid of the filibuster, pass HR1, make DC a state. So I think the Democrats broadly get a little too much uh, flack for this, for what the most reticent in the, in the caucus are doing. But absolutely, I think there is a tendency where you can fault even broad swath of mainstream elected officials is a lack of alarm and urgency around a lot of this stuff. I think there's a lot of hope that... There's a lot of hope that big programs, a big infrastructure program, big stimulus programs, the ability to take a deep breath after Trump will lead to an era of good feelings. The midterms will be hopefully a wash, you know, maybe some Republican gains, whatever, but like hopefully some Democratic ones. There's reasons for to hope for that. And then in 2024, we can hold on to power. And by then once you're looking into 2026, 2028, you'll have eight more years of demographic change under your belt and maybe Trumpism will be seen to be a lost cause. I think they're whistling past the graveyard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the, the challenge is that is that the insurrection is still ongoing. It is yeah. a slow rolling insurrection. If we do not get become very, very much more urgent about some of these things, not just HR1, but thinking about what happens when they refuse to certify a democratic victory, thinking about what happens when right-wing media are blaring that Dr. Fauci made COVID in a Chinese lab and gave it to everyone. Thinking about what happens when you have these sorts of upheavals and broader lies, urgency is not there. And, And this goes also to the insurrection itself. We aren't seeing Trump being subpoenaed to answer to his actions during that time. We're seeing the Department of Justice turn slowly to deal with the idiots who actually went into the Capitol and not deal with the people who sent them there, who are still roaming through Congress and terrorizing the Democratic elected officials. Trump, how is it that the leader of a failed coup is sitting at his resort 
and making plans for new social media networks and plans to run again for president in 2024. It's, it's numbing at a certain point, the degree to which we have not acknowledged that an actual coup is attempted yeah. and that there is an ongoing institution-wide slow rolling, not just attempt to create an apartheid electoral system through you know, gerrymandering vote suppression, but literally to disallow any future democratic victories going forward by simply refusing to acknowledge them as legitimate. It's a huge problem. Yeah. I, I, I think back to, um, in grad school, I did a bunch of research around the Iraq war. They, one of the big things that the Republicans used as an excuse for invading was that the Ba'ath party was a minority party that was undemocratically holding rule over country. And I'm like, you guys have converted into that. You know, you're, you're trying to become a minority party that never gives up control. Same, same thing's kind of going on in the UK. And it's a very, very worrisome path that we're on. And I'm really concerned about how do we get back on a path where, but we have people that are in good faith that have different views on the world, how, the, how we should be doing things working together and you know, building compromises and trying to move us forward rather than just trying to take the ball and go home. When, when you have a, a significant portion of the electorate being fed information that's completely bereft of reality for many, many years, you know, how do we come back from that ledge? I don't know. We could spend another hour on, <laughs> on parliamentary systems and presidential yeah. systems and, and the weaknesses of presidential systems that are showing up right now in American democracy. But absolutely, we, we do need to be moving toward – we're not going to overthrow our presidential system for a parliamentary system, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's not going to happen, at least not overnight. Yeah. But we do have to figure out ways to mitigate the, the problems of the presidential system that are – leading the situation to spiral out of control and and at the very least that means dealing with the electoral college it means dealing with the senate it means making sure that congress has increased powers over the presidency because the executive branch is too strong but also that congress is able to pass laws uh because they're not able to currently do so it means fixing the judiciary which is supposed to be nonpartisan, but is now functionally partisan and has the same sort of unfair tilt toward conservatives that electoral system now does. So you know, we, we have to try to do all of that. And the hope is that if those unfair structural advantages that worldwide conservatives have over the process, if that is mitigated and we can move more toward a true majoritarian system, then much like in California, this can end with a whimper instead of with a bang. And in theory, whatever a conservative party looks like, because there does have to be like, there's going to be people who are more on the left and people who are more on the right, whatever mm -hmm. that means. But, but whatever sort of conservatism small c looks like will hopefully not be tainted by what it has been in America, frankly, since the founding of the country, which is this desperately fearful group of dominionist white scots irish ideology kind of conservatives who are terrified that if they don't maintain control over women over non-whites etc that their hold on on power and civilization will be lost 
that has to go. And, and they sense that. They, they can sense that the continuation of the dominance of that culture is at, is what is threatened. And they're absolutely right about that. Yep. And it absolutely has to be overturned. That culture cannot continue to dominate. It's too odious and too harmful. Hmm. Well, ho- hopefully we're um, heading towards change on that end. I just I think we need to get there soon somehow. David, thank you very much for taking time to sit down with me. This has been a pleasure, and I learned quite a bit, as I always do, from your writing. Appreciate you making the time, and thank you, and I wish you well. All right, you too. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to the show. I hope it was interesting and that it helped you see something anew. As an independent press, we can use all the help we can get reaching new readers and listeners, so please do share this for us. Also, What Do We Do About the Pandemic will be available on July 4th, but if you're up for giving us a brief, honest review, you can pick up a free copy on BookSirens.com. Thanks again for listening. Eat supplied by Audio Binger.